0: Let's pray together. Great God and King, your word teaches us and demonstrates through a variety of accounts, testimonies, and stories that just one day in your presence is better than a thousand days elsewhere. And with the sons of Korah, we add our voices and say we would rather be doorkeepers in your house than to dwell in large dwellings lavishly furnished if they be places of wickedness even if they are places that are not inherently evil but Without your presence, they become empty and void in a way that leaves us hungry and alone. So, Father, would you please come to us today through your word. Deal bountifully with us as your people and servants. Deal bountifully with us that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. The unfolding of your words gives light, the psalmist writes. It imparts understanding to the simple, and we are simple ones. But your testimonies are righteous forever. So give us understanding now that we may live. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Researchers have been investigating. Oh, wait a second now. Yeah, there we go. Researchers have been investigating the science behind midnight snacking. (laughs) Could that be a a self-portrait? Some of you guilty? Corbin, you're nodding your head. (laughs) Anybody else want to join him in this confession at this moment? You get up in the middle of the night, you seek a little something. This was interesting to me. I'm not totally sure why, but as part of this research and experimentation, uh, a a group set up a test where they showed multiple pictures throughout the day of food to a variety of of people. And they've drawn some conclusions. They've begun to see some trends. And here are a couple of things that they share. When you eat a great meal or one of your favorite foods, you get a high from that food. At night, the drop in brain activity can leave you scarfing down way more chocolate or potato chips than you meant to. During the evening, our brain does not get the level of reward or high that it does when snacking during the day. And because you don't get the high, you continue to eat well past what you intended to. People may, listen to this, overconsume food at night because it is not as rewarding, at least visually, at that time of day. As a result, one needs to eat more to try to get satisfied. When snacking at night, take a moment to truly taste the food that you're eating. Ask yourself if you're actually receiving satisfaction or pleasure from the snack you are consuming. And if not, put the food down and drink a tall glass of water instead. (laughs) I'm not buying it, are you? (laughs) A tall glass of water, really? That's not why we go to the refrigerator late at night. It does remind us again, though, that there are appetites designed into our body that have to be satisfied. God, as a good creator, is the one who came up with this whole idea that these physical bodies would operate on fuel, and that fuel would include... Uh, a supply of food, and I think it's a testimony to the goodness of the creator. We were singing of of his goodness earlier, that he actually made the fuel that goes into your system that keeps you alive and running taste really good, and there's a variety of it, and there's sweet, and there's savory, and there's proteins, and carbs, and there's bread, and there's fish, and there's meat, and there's ketchup. (laughs) There's all kinds of stuff. But you know, those red letters on the screen right now and that big question mark at the end of it is an important question for us, not just in the middle of the night when you go to the refrigerator, but are you satisfied in life? Because there are also appetites of a spiritual nature that God, again, in his wisdom and goodness as creator, has designed into your soul. Appetites that remind you, you are created for more than just self, you're created for more than just the daily experiences, or the work, or the community, or the family, all of those things about our world that we rightly enjoy, but there's something deep in our souls that is created to be satisfied in Him alone. You ever wonder why some of the richest and most influential people in the world seem to struggle most in life? You remember several years ago when Tiger Woods' world just fell apart? And from the perspective of the ordinary person, you begin to say, what in the world? He is fabulously wealthy. There's nothing he couldn't go out and just pay cash for on the spot. He was literally married to a Swedish supermodel. I mean, there's a stereotype, right? He plays a game for a living. I know it's hot on some of those golf courses, and he sweats a little bit, but come on. I'm looking across this assembly, and some of you actually know what really hard work is. But it wasn't enough for him. And when the truth began to unfold about the immorality and just recklessness with which he was living and engaged in, I mean, it made the world sit up and take notice. And God intends stories like that to sober all of us. Because a lot of us are still living with some kind of delusion that if I, if I had more money or if I had a better family situation, or a better job, then then life would be better. And these urges and longings and cravings that I'm wrestling with every day would go away. And the reality is, there's only one thing that satisfies what you're struggling with. Well, we come to Mark's gospel again. And as you saw, if you let me back up here, The title of this message, I hope, will will intrigue you at the outset. The Satisfying and Sighing Savior. Because Jesus does both of those things in this passage. So turn to Mark 8 with me, please, if you will. And let's begin reading through the first 13 verses. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side two very different groups of people that Jesus interacts with in this particular passage. And the first is a a group, a large gathering, a great crowd, as Mark says in verse 1, has gathered. They have come to him for something. We've seen a number of crowds in the Gospel of Mark so far, haven't we? Going all the way back to chapter 1, the vast majority of them came because he was performing miracles, healing, exercising demons, and and showing a kind of divine power that few, if any, had ever seen before. But then we come to verse 2, and we notice that Jesus satisfies this great crowd, first of all, with deep compassion for our condition. Look at verse 2. These words are printed in red in my text. If you have a red-letter edition, that's a reminder that these are the words of Jesus himself. And he says, I have compassion on the crowd That is, I feel something deeply, or some have translated it this way, my heart goes out to the multitude. Jesus can relate to their condition in part because you remember, when He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, He fasted for 40 days. He is fully man. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be weakened physically. That's why the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if you come to that text, you can believe it as the the factual statement about Jesus it is, but how much more helpful is it to pair a a moment like this from Mark's gospel, a, a clear picture in the very words of Jesus himself saying, I have compassion for these people. It's a deep compassion. It's a compassion that is evoked by this particular condition. Jesus says, they've been with me three days. Mark uses terminology that, that conveys this thought that, that they are just like glued to him. They're sticking with him, not just hanging out casually, but they're, they're intently remaining with him. I wonder, where did they stay each night? It's described as a desolate place. There could not have been Ample hotel space in the vicinity. Perhaps some of the locals made room in their homes, but Jesus will note that many of them have come from a long distance. It's clear that his teaching has been so compelling and perhaps a healing ministry that has been ongoing. All of that's so compelling that these people have, have used up whatever provisions they happen to bring with them. They have been foregoing a regular meal schedule in order that they might have more time with him. But when Jesus says they have been with me three days, these people are holding fast to him. And Mark is highlighting the fact that there seems to be, as one commentator writes, a special adherence and commitment to Jesus. Now, keep that thought at the forefront because that's going to stand in contrast to the group of Pharisees who, who show up in verse 11. And then Jesus says not only that they've been with him three days, but that they have nothing to eat. So intent are these people on hearing the word of the Lord that food is no longer the first priority. And it's a fast of sorts. Foregoing meals. And, and I'm sure some of them were restless and, and thinking to themselves, I'm a little hungry, and where can we find food in this place? But Jesus is aware of it. And the point is not that these people are in a different class of disciple. They're not super saints that we should say, oh, you know, they're different from us. But that the person of Jesus and his power, the authority of his teaching, and the power of, healing, of his healing is so compelling that they must remain with him. Another author writes of this, Jesus is so magnetic, so marvelous, that those who surrounded him regarded it to be almost impossible to leave. Have you ever encountered Jesus in that way? Have there ever been moments where the word just came to life to you and you said, I, I don't want it to stop? I don't want to close out this little moment of devotional reading. I don't want this little season of prayer to come to an end. Jesus is present with me. I sense it. I hear him speaking through this word. I can feel his sanctifying presence at work in my soul. I just don't want to leave. Some of you would say, I have, but it's been a long time. What hinders you today from coming into the presence of Jesus again? Maybe you've gotten busy with other things. You've developed other priorities. Maybe there's sin in your soul that's been quenching the spirit. Some indifference that's begun to creep in. Others of you would say, I've never experienced the kind of thing you're talking about. I I believe in Jesus. I I even read his word sometimes, but never speaks to me in that way. Oh, my friends, the Lord has not called you into just a cerebral kind of relationship where you interact with the facts about Jesus and the way you would interact with with geometry, theorems, mathematic formulas. He calls you into a personal relationship. When was the last time you felt such a hunger for Jesus and found his word to be so satisfying that you just became oblivious, not only to the next meal, but to the next appointment, to the next care or thought or plan. So captivated by the person of Christ in a season of prayer that you lost track of time. The hours rolled by, maybe even a day or two or three, and you suddenly realized, I haven't haven't eaten anything. That's the kind of thing that was taking place here. Jesus not only satisfies those who come to him with deep compassion for their condition. They've been with him three days. They don't have anything to eat, but here's a second thought in verse 3 with genuine concern for their vulnerability and ours. Look at verse 3. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. I don't think he's speaking with exaggeration. He actually knows The the frailty of the human body recognizes that some of them would actually be in physical trouble if they didn't go, if they didn't have something to eat. The Bible doesn't tell us how many miles they would have had to travel, but just that phrase far away again tells you something about how compelling his person was. That people made a journey, even at some personal risk. And the word faint has has the idea of becoming so tired and weary so as to give out. Some of you have been at that point. Maybe it's work. Maybe you've even taken a great adventure out into the outdoors. And maybe you hiked beyond the limits of your physical capacity or even hiked beyond the supply of food that you brought with you you would relate to the kind of thing that Jesus is indicating here. Oh, how much the Savior loves us, knows us, and cares for us. And we may be sure that when we pursue Him with such personal intensity that we actually begin to neglect some of the necessary things of life, He notices. And not in a, in a self-righteous kind of, of manipulating Christ, but rather that this is something that that moves him, something that he delights in. It's also his delight to provide for those needs. So with genuine concern for our vulnerability. But now go to verse 4, and here's a third thought, with generous provision for our need. Now we've seen this before, haven't we? And it's a parallel account. He fed 5,000 men plus the women and children. And when we came through that in chapter 6, we noted that it could have been a crowd upwards of 20,000. So this is not nearly as large a crowd, but he's going to provide for thousands again here. And there's a seeming challenge of inadequate resources. Look at verse 4. His disciples answer him as he says, "Let's, let's provide something for them to eat. Their question is, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? A desolate place. Who is able in this remote region to satisfy these people with bread? It's a wilderness. It's a term we encountered before in a couple of other settings with Jesus. It's an uninhabited, uncultivated land. And as far as they look, there's nothing available, no food trucks coming over the horizon. Humanly speaking, there just aren't options for this large crowd. They also possess inadequate resources. When Jesus says, uh, how many loaves do you have? Verse 5, the answer comes back, seven. Seven. And then they do a little more searching and they find a few small fish. And the term that, that Mark uses indicates they're little ones. These are sardines. I love sardines but only in a particular setting and generally that is in the mountains about day two of a backpacking trip Um, now I'll eat them at other times but nothing tastes as good to me as a freshly opened can of sardines and I use that term freshly understanding that we have to put some qualifiers on that but but when you crack that can open And the first thing you do is kind of dig those things out, and you lay them on saltines or Ritz crackers if you want to spend the extra money. Uh, Get the fancy crackers. Um, Oh, that tastes so good. And then there's always a little leftover in the bottom of the can when you're done, and you say, what am I going to do with that? Because especially when you're backpacking, you don't want to leave that out. The bears love it, and they'll be, you know, crawling in your tent enjoying that later in the day or night if you don't do so well that's where you take the crumbs that are in your Cracker bag because when you're backpacking it all gets mashed up and and you put the crumbs down in there And you just kind of stir it around and you savor those last couple of bites There's nothing like that Yeah, I Don't see anyone out here right now agreeing with me like amen Danny. I am with you. Is there a Gina? Randy. Oh, wow. Okay, so there are more of you. That's encouraging. I was seeing a lot of, like, forlorn faces. There's plenty of time before lunch, so you can recover. Those of you who are just traumatized by that, okay? So the inventory that they've got to work with here is pitiful. That's the point. And it frankly is as pitiful as kind of what I just described because some of you are like, you know what, I don't care if it's day two or day seven of a backpacking trip, you can have the sardines, I'm not eating them. Now, this would have been a very common uh, food source for the people, but again, a few small fish, what is this? How, how will this even begin to, uh, to address the need That is before them but look at how the story goes we read this just a moment ago so they say we have seven loaves he directed the crowd to sit down and they begin to distribute the loaves and then they say and we've got a few small fish here verse 7 and having blessed them he said that these also should be set before them and they ate and were satisfied they're filled Now this word satisfied, we've been paying attention to it. It occurred in chapter 6, it occurred in chapter 7, and now it occurs again in chapter 8. Mark is intentionally taking us to this truth and this reality repeatedly so that we will learn it and believe it and begin to live by it. Jesus has the power to satisfy us, even when we look around us and say, the resources aren't present. I don't have it personally. Nobody else seems to have it. Where will we go to find this kind of satisfaction? Where will we go to find those, those deep desires of our hearts and souls satisfied? And the answer is only Jesus. Only Jesus. You know, every day you're tempted, as I am, to look to other people or other things to satisfy what's going on in here. That's why if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, and we'll go there again, I've touched on this several times of late, and you look at how that three-part temptation unfolds for Adam and Eve, perfect people in a perfect environment, actually in a perfect relationship with God at that point, but, but the devil takes advantage of God-created desires within them, and he sets before them fruit, and we don't know what kind it was exactly, but there are three things that, that are recorded about that temptation. And the first is, it was good for food. It's going to provide something that I need. Number two, it's pleasant to the eyes. It's attractive. I look at this thing and I say, what's wrong with that? And then the third, it's desirable to make one wise. That is, Satan tempts them in such a way where when they take the fruit, their eyes are going to be open to something that they currently don't understand. I mean, it seems like it will lead to an improvement in life, an improvement in circumstances, an improvement in the personal condition. But it ends up being their destruction and death, doesn't it? And the devil operates out of the same playbook every single day. And it may not be physical fruit that he sets before you that God has put off limits, but it may be a relationship that God has said, nope, nope. It may be an activity that God has said, no, not that. That's, that, that will actually bring death and destruction to you. But at that moment, it's good for food, it's pleasant to the eyes, it's desirable, it's some level of wisdom. And sometimes God puts us into places of profound hunger so that we would learn the lesson we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of his mouth. I love the words of this author, William Lane, in his commentary on Mark. He writes, The sole purpose of the feeding is to meet the physical needs of the multitude who chose to be nourished by Jesus' word rather than bread. So yeah, there's a miracle here. But what leads up to this miracle may in fact be more important than the miracle itself. And that is these are people who for three days followed hard after Jesus and said, we do not want to miss the next lesson he teaches, the next sermon he preaches, or the next healing he performs. We just want Jesus to the point where eating and drinking was secondary but not to Jesus, who miraculously comes back and says, you need food, here's bread, and here's fish that satisfies. He always provides generously. And so these people, as Mark records, verse 9, he sent away. They go away full physically, don't they? More than that, they go away full spiritually. Satisfied. I'm sure they wish there could have been day four, day five, day six, day seven. Let's make it a week long time. But you know, they were thankful for three days. And then a meal to close it out that has been memorialized forever. Are you satisfied in Jesus today? Maybe the endless channel surfing every evening is a better indicator of how dissatisfied you are with your lot in life than you would want to admit. Maybe the fact that you really are addicted to your smartphone. I mean, you find yourself looking at stuff, whether it be social media, playing games. I mean, it's just like if it's there, it's in front of you. Your eyes are focused there, and your soul is, I I, I hesitate to use the word engaged, because so often we're not actually engaged at the soul level, but you're just kind of anesthetizing your soul, trying to just kind of actually push aside that deep longing and craving in your heart that says there's got to be more to this life than what I have. You know, if you knew Jesus, those things would not dominate your waking thoughts? Are you satisfied with Jesus? Well, there's another group coming. You know, hungry people are grouchy people. Have you noticed that? We even have a term that we've coined, the combination of two words, right? Hangry. That's hunger and anger put together, and some of you say, yeah, I am that. That's going to be me in about 90 minutes. Some of you say, I skipped breakfast. I'm already there. Stop talking about food, Danny. Well, hang in there. We're going to shift the focus a little bit. You know, there are spiritual truths to that statement as well, that spiritually hungry people are often grouchy. They say things and do things that, hurt and offend, they're hostile sometimes for no reason, apparently, but if we could actually see inside, we'd recognize that's because they have spiritual appetites that have taken control, and and they're, they're trying desperately to feed them, but they're not feeding them anything that's satisfying. I think that's some of what's going on in verse 11, when the Pharisees come to Jesus, and did you notice this? They begin to argue with him. Now, just to put it in its context, verse 10 told us that Jesus got into the boat. He went to the district of Dalmanutha. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So he'd been on the eastern side in the predominantly Gentile area. Now he crosses back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The western shore enters a community, and, and it's written as if these guys are waiting for him. The Pharisees attempt to discredit Jesus by their arguments. They came, and Mark uses a bit of a military term. It's a term that's used sometimes to describe a a, a military uh, rank. So it's like here they've come out, the rank and file, and, and they're on a mission. We've seen them do this before, but Mark says specifically they came to argue, that is to dispute. They're there to express their forceful differences of opinion without a presumed goal of seeking a solution. They're not there to learn. They're not there to investigate. They're there to make their points and to discredit Jesus by their arguments. The second thing that we see about them is that they are seeking a sign. It's a further attempt to discredit him by testing, and that's another word that Mark uses to to summarize why the Pharisees have come. Now, a, a, a very brief background it's likely that these Pharisees have come operating out of two Old Testament passages that that teach the people of God how to discern a true prophet from a false prophet. The first is Deuteronomy 13. The second is Deuteronomy 18. And essentially, there are three specific tests that God establishes for any person who says, I'm a prophet sent from God. The first is this. He must speak in the name of the Lord, not some other god. So you don't walk into an assembly and say uh, it's Jesus plus Buddha in a in more present-day context, or Jesus plus Confucius, or Jesus plus Muhammad. That would be prophesying in the name of another God. Number two is message must be in accord with God's revealed truth in Scripture. So people who show up with new revelation that doesn't square with what the Old Testament and New Testament give us, you can be assured they're false prophets. And the third would be that predictions, any predictions of future events must come true exactly as predicted. God doesn't give a passing grade of like, well, you know, like if, he, if 65% of the prophecies come true, then it's a prophet. If 90% come true, it's a prophet. No, it's, it's 100%. 100%. And in that context, one of the things that Moses describes for the people of God, is a prophet or a dreamer, this is Deuteronomy 13, arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. It's interesting that God acknowledges that there will be those who have powers to perform signs and wonders that would make everybody say, "Whoa." But if their message still sends the people to a different God, a different direction, God says, don't follow him. Don't go after him. Don't be caught up with the signs and wonders. But somehow by Jesus' day, this whole desire for a sign or a wonder is what the Pharisees seem to be setting forward in order for Jesus uh, or putting Jesus to a test testing him to see if he really is God. They're basically saying, we want God to show up in this moment through the sign that you will perform to verify that you are who you say you are. Now again, in our study of Mark, we just, at this point, we're like, are you, are you kidding me? Where have you people been? Have you missed all of these miracles to this point? Have you missed these divine signs? And the truth is, they have seen, they have heard, they refuse to believe. And the word test does not mean an objective test to discover the merits of Christ or his teaching or healing ministry at this point. They're they're actually seeking to put a stumbling block again to discredit him. It's interesting to me that Jesus responds to them very differently than he responded to that crowd of 4,000 who came to learn, to be taught to be fed. Look at the text and notice. Verse 12 says, he sighed deeply in his spirit. You could even substitute the word groan. The word Mark uses is actually very rare. This is the only occurrence of it in the New Testament. There's other Greek literature Where this term is used, one commentator notes that a survey of its uses reveals that it is not an expression of anger or indignation so much as of dismay or despair. The word is used to describe persons who find themselves in situations where they are pushed to the limit of faithfulness. Now, Jesus is not being pushed to the limit of faithfulness, but I do think it is interesting that Mark chooses this very rare word to describe the depths of dismay that Jesus, the Son of God, is experiencing at this moment at the hardness of heart, at the hostility of these people who've come to test him. And it pushes from the soul of God, the Son, a groan of despair. And this despair, this deep dismay, is what will begin Jesus' withdrawal or departure from them. Again, can you imagine the God of glory groaning from his soul over your hardness of heart? See, if you read God's word or you sit in a setting like this and, and essentially refuse him and say, nope. God, your word has no authority in my life because I'm going to do what I want to do. It functionally is the same attitude. And we sometimes think of God in fairly narrow ways. Certainly, our sin stirs a righteous response of anger. And there are times where He is filled with sorrow. But this particular response that is from God himself is a deep dismay. And as we've read through the Gospel of Mark, you know, as the readers following this whole story, we look at these guys and, and we feel some of that too. We're like, really? You guys don't get it? But how often do we not get it? Because we really don't want to get it. We say if I submit myself to God's word, if I obey, it's gonna cost me too much. Or I'm gonna to have to release control of this particular situation, or or I'm gonna to have to give up something that I've worked hard to, to achieve. You know, had they come to him at this moment to discover truth or learn truth from him as he taught it, they would have received a very different response. He would have still been moved deeply. We just saw that, didn't we? But it would have been the the movement of compassion from the depths of his soul. But here is dismay. He sighed deeply in his spirit. Think about this. The refusal of the Pharisees to submit to the lordship of Christ and their attempt to dispute his word and discredit his authority stirs a deep response and God the Son groans. God the, God the Son groans over some of you this morning as you have repeatedly hardened your heart against Him. And you know, Jesus does not bring judgment on these Pharisees at this particular moment, but He's about to make a move that is catastrophic he's about to actually back away from them to say, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to give you a sign, the end of verse 12. Because you're part of a generation who actually wants nothing to do with me. I'm just going to withdraw. And that's why I say he withdraws with devastating consequence. These Pharisees don't know how desperately they need Jesus to stay with them. But they're so confident in their system of religion, they're so uh, self-assured in their self-righteousness that they actually look at him as an enemy when he is actually their only hope of salvation. There is no other Savior in the world. There is no other way of salvation but the way that is Jesus Christ. That's why he said in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Your sincerity doesn't get you to the Father. Your earnestness doesn't get you to the Father. Your personal sacrifice doesn't get you to the Father. Only Jesus and the highway of their salvation that stands open before them right now is about to be closed down because of their arrogance and their hardness of heart, their indifference to the teaching of God through, through Christ and, and their disputing of His authority. And Jesus says, I will not give you a sign because he is not interested in giving people uh, signs or miracles or even his truth when they will twist it and manipulate it and abuse it. It's similar to when he instructed us, don't cast your pearls before swine. Sometimes you actually don't say anything in response to a hostile enemy of the gospel. Look at verse 13. The devastating consequence is this. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. I just want you to ponder that image for a minute. You, with the Pharisees, maybe even as one of them standing on the shore, probably, in their case, thinking, yeah, we put him in his place. Run back to the Gentiles, Jesus. We don't want you on our side. And yet as that little boat with the disciples and the Savior sailed further and further away, their opportunity to believe the truth, to experience the forgiveness of their sins, to experience the gift of eternal life went further with him. It's actually a dramatic moment. It's easy to read past little moments like this in the gospel, but I am confident that God gives us these opportunities to stare at these verses and consider what was really taking place This is a catastrophic departure and he does it so that you will not make the same decision leading to your own catastrophic, devastating consequence. When God gave Moses his word, in Deuteronomy 32 verse 20, God said as part of the the promised blessings and also the promised cursings, Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, the Lord himself said, "If, if my people continue to reject me, listen to his words, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. And this, as one author writes, is Jesus' deliberate disengagement from discussion with the Pharisees and the generation they represent? It's awful. Are you part of this same generation? Are you arguing with God? Debating? the authority of his word in your own life? Or are you just submitting to it, hanging on every word, saying, you know what, I don't care about lunch today, I just want to be with Jesus. Such a contrast between that Gentile crowd of 4,000 people. Some of them came from a long distance, not to argue, not to debate, not to tempt him, or cast some kind of stumbling block in front of him or his disciples, but just to say, Jesus, we just want you. You see, I have no idea If any of them were still on the other side, but I'll guarantee you as soon as that boat hit the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, word spreads again. He's back. Bring the leftover sardines. We want more of Jesus. Two shores. Two groups of people. Where are you? Would you bow your heads with me, please? You know, God did not create you to form your own religion and work out your own righteousness. You were created with an appetite in your heart and soul that can only be satisfied in Jesus. What will you do with him today? Will you, like the crowd, follow hard after him as the only sustaining, satisfying bread of life? Or will you, like the Pharisees, follow your appetites for affirmation and approval from the people around you? Or for that feeling of comfort and control that you gain by adhering to whatever man-made religious system you're a part of? Jesus gives full attention and care to those who seek him. He satisfies them. And from the other, he not only sighs, groaning deeply from his soul, but eventually he will disengage. Come to him. Go hard after him. Father, take your word and your word alone. Not my opinion, not my perspective, not our opinions or our perspective as, as a group, but let your word with all of its life-giving, life-transforming power and authority and root it in our hearts and cause us to be people who go hard after you, who happily give up even things we need just to have more of you. Save us from our Phariseeism. Forgive us for disputing with you, arguing over your word, your will. Oh, God, just root all of that out of us. Please, we pray, do not disengage with us, but remain even as we seek to remain with you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have an opportunity to respond